Welcome to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. As much as your health and well-being are important, so is the health and well-being of your pet. Join us today as we break down some of the top treatment and wellness programs that you need to know about in order to help your pet live a fulfilling and healthy life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Welcome to Healthy Tales, where we discuss current animal-related news, interview experts in specific areas of veterinary medicine, and discuss product information for pet owners in our Product of the Week segment. I'm your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, and with me today are my amazing co-hosts, Dr. Elaine McCarthy and veterinary technician Tim Hayes. Thanks for being here today, guys. Good morning. Good morning. We have another great show for our listeners. Today, we get to talk to our expert guest, Dr. Lauren Foster, a board-certified nutritionist, and we get to pick her brain about all things pet nutrition, so we can be sure we are doing right by our pets. After that, I will share my choice product of the week and explain why it's important to our pet's quality of life. We are so happy to have all our listeners here with us today and downloading our podcast version of our show. We are so grateful for your continued support, and we love sharing our thoughts and expertise with you each week. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, or topic ideas, please reach out to us. We love feedback. You are welcome and encouraged to email me anytime at vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. All right, as we do with each and every episode, let's start with our animal news segment, the Boston Terrier Globe. Huh? How do you like that one, guys? All right, Boston, Boston Globe. Yeah, I don't think it's too bad. All right, well, hey, McCarthy and Tim, how was your guys's Fourth uh, of July? Specifically, how were your pets during the Fourth of July? <laughs> oh, oh, it was guys? a legitimate nightmare. Um, <laughs> legitimate nightmare. So I woke up with a migraine, uh, which lasted all day. So I spent the entire day with a pounding headache and violent waves of nausea. Uh, my dog Daisy, who usually can be calmed uh, with loud noises with a single Benadryl, mm-hmm. uh, it did nothing because my town's fireworks were insane. Uh, insane. Three hours of just nonstop professional grade fireworks being launched from every yard in my in my neighborhood. So she was a wreck for like three hours while I was suffering a migraine. She was just pacing the, the house, barking, yelping, whining. I, an hour in, I was just like, I really wish I'd brought home some like trazodone. Two hours in, I was like, I really wish I'd brought home some trazodone. <laughs> it was oh, it no. was awful. Oh, Tim, you should have called me. Yeah, I, I considered it. Oh my gosh, considered it. <laughs> McCarthy, what about your pets? Uh, my cats overall did well. I drugged them uh, in the early afternoon, <laughs> so uh, they were. Yes, they they were drunk, stumbling in the back legs slightly, but they slept <laughs> through most of it. Um, but yeah, overall they, they did well. <laughs> okay, good, 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 good. We had, uh, I thought uh, my, my little kitty cat does fine. Thank goodness. You know, she, uh, she doesn't, uh, have any too big of issues. She, she kind of hides, um, but she normally does anyways. And so, uh, <laughs> and so we had, I thought it was really cute though. This, uh, this shelter in Phoenix, uh, where all these people, all these volunteers, uh, come in on the 4th of July, uh, to this Phoenix shelter and they kind of go there and they sit with the pets and it's, it's, it's really cute. It was a really great, uh, um, picture of showing all these people and the individual runs with these dogs, um, just kind of calming them down. So I thought that, that was, was really nice. cool. Yeah. Oh, it is, it's super, super nice. So good, good deal guys. So, uh, I was actually going to start off today with, uh, with this article, the, it starts off with the four reasons not to worry about the new swine flu in the news. All right. So, 
Uh, I'd like to first start out by saying, um, what new slime, swine flu? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. but, but seriously, this, this article talks about how there is currently an influenza virus that binds um, to a protein called um, salicylic uh, or ciliac acid. All right. And so humans and birds each have different types of this protein, but pigs actually have both of them. And thus they're more susceptible to getting the influenza virus. There's also this thing called reassortment, which means that one, uh, that once the virus is in, in the pigs, um, then birds, swines, and human influenza viruses can exchange genetic material, uh, which can create new strains of influenza. Uh, this new G4 swine flu virus, as they call it, is, uh, is not a huge concern at this time for four reasons. <clears throat> One, um, it really has been, it's like it's been around since 2019 in pigs, and we haven't seen big numbers of it in humans or animals yet. Two, while, uh, while some people have been infected, uh, we're not even sure if it's causing sickness or, or clinical symptoms. And three, the, the virus doesn't seem to be found in, you know, in countries other than China since it was uh, first discovered. So, and then four, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really look like um, it's easily spread from person to person. So thank goodness, because again, guys, uh, <clears throat> our current pandemic is the first and last I'd like to be a part of. And so, so hopefully, good. So hopefully this has not become uh, more of an issue going forward. Yeah, re reason number five, I, I physically am unable to worry about anything else at this point. Like, there's just, I, I don't have it in me. I couldn't worry about this if I wanted to. Uh, absolutely, Deb, uh, agreed. All right. All right, Elaine, what do you got for us? All right, so my article was COVID lockdown reveals human impact on wildlife. Um, so due to COVID, obviously people around the world went into lockdown, which reduced human mobility. Um, there have been unusual animal sightings in atypical locations due to this re reduced human activity, i.e. pumas in the streets of downtown Santiago, Chile, and dolphins in the harbor of Trieste, Italy, where normally they do not see these creatures. Whereas other animals who rely on human food may be struggling, such as seagulls, rats, monkeys, um, all those things that we love to see in the streets, um, endangered species actually might be at higher risk of poaching, um, such as rhinos and raptors, as uh, people are, are illegally going into parks and, and poaching and logging areas that they're not supposed to because there is no humans monitoring um, those area, areas. Researchers have decided to chart how modern human mobility affects wildlife by forming the COVID-19 Biologging Initiative. This will investigate animals' movements, behaviors, and stress levels before, during, and after COVID lockdown using data collected by electronic devices attached to the animals called biologgers. Uh, they are collecting info from fish, birds, and mammals, and the goal is to learn what influences animal behavior so that they can come up with solutions to improve human-wildlife coexistence. Um, so just another example of how people are using this COVID-19 lockdown to try to help you know, certain situations. Um, and hopefully they can come up with some uh, some ideas and how to improve uh, our existence with with wildlife and hopefully help reduce you know species going extinct and and so on and so forth. Oh yeah, first first and foremost, my wife wanted me to compliment the author on the word 
anthropos, <laughs> which is the absolute perfect word for what we're experiencing right now. Right, most of the COVID news, uh, you know, related to animals, uh, again, has been really, it's been good. You know, for example, we are seeing wildlife flourish. You know, more more turtles going back to uh, certain beaches, as we read, as well as wells showing up in new, closer places. Um, but this article also has an interesting take on COVID actually hurting animals, like you said, um, the environment too. I found it interesting that some urban areas have had such, you know, have had such access, you know, some of these places have had such access to human food that they've kind of like evolved now to count on, you know, humans for food. And so uh, the idea of biologging is great too. I bet, you know, I bet they're going to get like some really incredible information and we'll be able to do, yeah, I think a lot with it. I love that we're trying to answer obviously the most obvious question in the world, which is, you know, the movement of animals in modern landscape predominantly affected by built structures or by the presence of humans. So very obvious answer, I know, but it's important to be able to really, to me, to quantify it and to put it into more definitive, understandable terms. Like it can help us understand what behaviors um, it is affecting and why, and more importantly, what can we do about it? So Overall, uh, I thought this article was nifty. I like that they use that word in there, nifty. <laughs> it's like a different article. <laughs> so I thought that was great. <laughs> so good. All right, Tim, what do you got for us, buddy? Uh, so I've got some research uh, where the, um, the researchers were essentially trying to figure out a way to truly compare uh, a dog's age to, to human years. You know, we have that old adage that, you know, one human years is equivalent to seven dog years. And we've always known that to be, you know, inaccurate just based on the fact that dogs mature at a different rate than us. Um, you know, if you think about it, a, a, a nine-month-old dog is generally speaking at sexual maturity, which is not roughly equivalent to, to a human by that scale. Um, not yet, at least. So we'll see what all the hormones in our milk and meat keeps doing to our species long term. But for now, it's not a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, so what they're looking at in this research is changes to the DNA um, called methylation markers. And it the researchers uh, compare it to kind of wrinkles on a person's face. It's just little imperfections in the DNA that, that accumulate over time and uh, give you sort of a clearer year or clearer idea of, of the physiological age of an animal. Um, they, the, the interesting thing here is uh, rather than one year, uh, like a one-year-old dog being seven, uh, according to these researchers, a one-year-old dog is actually 30 years old, which uh -huh. is, is kind of fascinating to me. Um, so the formula they came up with is, useless to 99% of the population. Um, it is, and I don't do math, um, so I might be misinterpreting this, but it, it seems to me to be 16 times the natural logarithm of your dog's age plus 31, which, I mean, I think most people can do natural logarithms in their head, so I mean, that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> that's easy peasy. Um, the, the issue is that it doesn't really get into different breeds of dogs. Um, you know, we, uh, small dogs live longer, older dogs, you know, don't live quite as long. Um, in veterinary medicine, we have a tendency to think of, you know, seven-year-old dogs as seniors. But even that is not really the most effective rule of thumb because, you know, if you look at like a chihuahua or a dachshund, um, at seven years of age, they, they haven't lived long enough to have a midlife crisis yet. Whereas if you have like a French Mastiff at seven years of age, that 
dog's been dead for two years. So <laughs> I think we're, we're definitely going to need some new formulas um, to, to work out uh, some of these issues. And especially with older, you know, with larger breeds, it's not even a shorter lifespan. It's a different uh, rate of maturation. Um, maturation? Oh. Um, they, you know, uh, don't reach a sexual maturation until a year. And they only live, you know, seven to nine years. So they're, they're it's just a completely different ballgame for, for our large breed dogs. So we're going to need new formulas with multiple natural logarithms. Uh, epsilons, I think, are used in math sometimes. Some of those weird symbols that are on the blackboard in, in Goodwill Hunting. We're going to need to bring numbers. out all the weird math. Yeah. yeah, imaginary numbers for sure are going to be involved. So. Yeah, um, but I, I can't wait to see what the researchers come up with. Absolutely. And again, like I'm a big fan of looking at age uh, more of, you know, I mean, from, you know, more of the molecular level for dogs and hopefully cats too at some point. Because the seven year thing totally, again, never made sense to me, especially when you put it in terms of a dog being able to have a baby at nine months. So, I mean, <laughs> that yeah. doesn't make any sense. Again, I think and hope this information will help, um, you know, be more helping people kind of be more proactive and treating our, you know, our older pets because it can help pet owners, I think, better understand what age level their pet is and what they can expect in terms of health. Sometimes it, you know, can help to compare to humans or families understand, you know, understand age better. So if I'm, you know, if I'm recommending, you know, yearly blood work for a dog, you know, around seven years of age, obviously, which actually it's important at any age, but um, it's kind of, it's kind of like how human doctors push, you know, to do more, thorough blood work more frequently when, you know, we get up into our forties and fifties. It's, uh, I like that they're using methylation again. We kind of, we, they used it to kind of describe why dogs are starting to age. So I think, I think you're exactly right to me. I mean, you put it perfectly. Like we, I, I like how they're using this, like to under, you know, because the seven year thing just didn't make any sense, but there's a lot more work, you know, I mean, for this, you know, for us to understand how we should need to age pets because, Every breed is different, you know, and so there can't be, it's, there's no way that we can just have a one, basically one formula for all pets. It's just not, it's just not going to work. There's no unified formula. There's just not. not. I mean, these, all these pets, they, yeah, they definitely, I'm assuming, you know what I mean? They're, they all, they age differently. And so we have to come up with something a little bit different for them. I, I assume so just so we can like better understand their aging process. So they're good. You're good. All right, guys. So lastly, all right, I just wanted to talk about the, you know, to feed or not to feed your pet a vegan diet. All right. So this has been uh, <clears throat> kind of something, uh, again, a little bit more trending over the past few years. All right. Can you feed your, you know, cats and dogs a vegan diet? All right. The article starts off by talking about the concern, you know, a lot of people have about the carbon footprint that's being left by pets consuming food and animals being consumed. So people are trying to be more responsible in terms of eating less meat and also being more cognizant of how we process food. So, so can we feed a dog or, or and a cat? Can we feed them a vegan diet? Uh, I guess the very short answer would be that dogs can if it's done correctly, but cats cannot. In terms of feeding a dog a vegan diet, the author suggests that it's far easier to do it you know, the wrong way than it is to do it the right way. But the right way is extremely important. All right. So dogs, dogs have adapted um, a little more to human diets and have like an amylase gene, which helps them digest plant starch. 
Cats, on the other hand, are obligate carnivores. So they need a certain amino acid and meats like you know, you know, beef, chicken, and fish are rich in taurine, an important amino acid that cats need. So <clears throat> again, it's so one company uh, made a vegan diet you know, for cats, rich with uh, modified uh, taurine. <clears throat> but again, this is Again, this is fairly new, so we're going to have to kind of see how this how this goes. But not only do we want to be feeding our pets the nutrition their body needs, but there are also laws um, to be sure um, to be sure that we do. Like, and um, and the vegan diet obviously wouldn't meet the requirements for this. For instance, there are um, British animal welfare laws to feed you know I mean a pet an appropriate diet, and obviously this you know. These would not be all right, and so I found it interesting though. Um, they go really into depth about you know, um, since crickets are a great source of protein, these can be used as a way to meet nutritional requirements for dogs and cats while also significantly decreasing our carbon footprint. So, again, crickets may be the answer. Um, the, the rest of the article goes into um, some great information about the sustainability um, of crickets as a protein source, but. I don't want to be, I obviously don't want to completely continue to kind of nerd out on you about this, but it was extremely exciting to see uh, just how, you know, how much, the, how, how much difference the crickets can make as far as, again, their impact on how much feed it would take for them, you know what I mean, to create like one, one grain of protein uh, and versus, you know, you know, versus, you know, cows and things like that and in the amount of water. So it, it's the, it extremely looks like a much more sustainable way to uh, produce proteins that we can feed to our pets and purposely humans. I did have, as a side note, I did eat a cricket once. It wasn't too bad. I wasn't, uh, it wasn't too bad, guys. So <laughs> this yeah, might be something I, I, we, I thought the cricket tasted like peanut. I, I didn't think it was that bad. It was that bad. No. McCarthy, any crickets for you? I don't think I've ever eaten a cricket. <laughs> At least not intentionally. So oh, you yeah. got to get in on it. Well, uh, come on, McCarthy. All right. I'm just saying. All right. So we had two, two, two out of the three of us. All right. They get crickets. Again, definitely a protein source for our pets. All right. And, and they seem to like really like it. I guess like crickets, again, can be really, really tasty. And so I, I don't know. So well, with the right seasoning. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So we'll we'll have to see how this goes. I'm extremely excited about it. It definitely seems much more sustainable uh, when you look at the data. So I'm hoping that this is a new way for us to to make pet foods. We can hopefully decrease our carbon footprint, uh, and hopefully it is a win win for for everybody. All right. So yeah, thank I you guys do, for go ahead. I was gonna say I do like that they're looking into alternative ways to make pet foods to help with decreasing carbon emissions and whatnot. My concerns would just be the kind of the long-term studies that they do on it, just like with the, the big diets causing heart disease, the boutique, grain-free, exotic, whatever diets causing heart disease in dogs. I certainly, I don't think I would want to put my cat on the first uh, trial of these. <laughs> we never want to be the first. <laughs> right, exactly. I would want to see kind of the long-term studies of how this affects, affects the animals. Yeah. Before going into it. But yeah, it is nice that they're thinking of alternative alternative ways of doing this. I, I get it too. I just because it's not super sustainable. I think, again, from what it sounds like, how we're doing things, you know, right, right. at this time. And so, um, but yeah, we have to be creative. So, excellent. Excellent. Thanks for keeping us up to date on Animals in the News, everyone. When we come back, we will be talking with a specialist in pet nutrition, Dr. Lauren Foster, and learning how to provide our pets with the best nutrition possible. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The Vet Pros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards health care for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. Welcome back to Healthy Tales. Pet nutrition is always evolving in veterinary medicine, and owners are constantly looking for the best nutrition for their pets. The problem is there are so many brands of pet food, and it feels like every store sells pet food. So all the choices can be very confusing. Fad diets and celebrities putting their faces on dog foods can make it even more difficult to understand the best diet to feed our pets. As a veterinarian, I see pet nutrition problems like pet obesity, liver disease, and food allergies every day. And all veterinarians work hard to stay up to date on pet nutrition so we can guide our pet owners as they create the healthiest lives for their pets. As a veterinarian, I see pet nutrition problems like pet obesity, liver disease, and food allergies every day. And all veterinarians work hard to stay up to date on pet nutrition so we can guide pet owners as they create the healthiest lives for their pets. Proper pet nutrition is a great way to keep our pets healthy. And that's why we are excited to have today's guest, Dr. Lauren Foster, here to discuss some of the top questions veterinarians are asked every day about pet nutrition. Dr. Lauren Foster received her Doctorate of Veterinary Medicine from Mississippi State University in 2006. Afterwards, she moved to the East Coast, where she practiced general small animal medicine and surgery for seven years in Maryland and New York before pursuing a small animal nutrition residency at the University of Missouri in 2013. She completed her residency in 2015 and began a postdoctoral research fellowship. She became a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Nutrition in 2017 and later a certified canine rehabilitation practitioner in 2019. 
She spent a year and a half as an assistant teaching professor at Small Animal Nutrition at the University of Missouri before joining Heart of Texas Veterinary Specialty Center in 2019. She's excited to return to private practice and advance the specialty of nutrition and rehabilitation in the private sector. Dr. Foster has a very soft spot for cats and shares her home with her husband and their cat, Jade. In her free time, Lauren loves traveling, cooking, reading, and being active outdoors. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Foster, for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Foster, where did you grow up? I am from a really uh, small town in, in southern Mississippi called Poplarville. Um, many people have never heard of it, but um, it's down close to the coast, uh, about an hour half or so from, from New Orleans. Very cool. And now, did you, um, did you know right away that you wanted to be a veterinarian, or what was kind of your journey before you, you know, um, that you thought this is the career you wanted to go into? Yeah, um, so I have always been surrounded by animals. Um, my dad had a little hobby farm my entire life, um, so I always uh, helped him, you know, vaccinate the sheep and shear them and dehorn the goats and, um, and and feed all the critters that we had. So um, I think it was just kind of a, a natural, um, you know, career path for me. I. I don't remember a time uh, wanting wanting to do anything else. Uh, so, and my sister is also a veterinarian, so I must run in the family a little bit. But <laughs> I, I kind of uh, I kind of credit my, my father for that because we've just I've always been surrounded by animals, um, tons of them and all kinds, uh, my whole life. So, Very cool. Yeah. And so, uh, in undergrad, did you what did you major in? Uh, I majored in what's called animal and dairy sciences. Um, it's just kind of a kind of a general um, uh, major that would would kind of if, if you knew you were interested in going to vet school um, would help you to um, to meet all of those requirements before before applying. Um, so and I, I did what what's called a, a three plus one program um, where you do your your three years of your undergraduate work. Um, and then the first year of vet school um, kind of kind of counts as your your fourth um, year in undergrad. So you kind of kind of a little speed up um, uh, process, uh, which which was nice. Um, but nice. Uh, you you end up getting a bachelor's degree um, after you've already gotten into vet school. But um, that that major kind of allows you to um, get all the the prerequisites and the qualifications that you need to to apply to vet school. Okay, very, very cool. And so, uh, <clears throat> so you want to tell us a little about your vet school experience and everything like that getting into school? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I, again, I'm originally from Mississippi, so I went to Mississippi State University uh, for vet school, um, which is in Starkville, Mississippi, just kind of the, the northern part of the state, again, in, in the kind of the middle of nowhere, very, very small town. Um, I'm a super nerd. Um, I love learning. I still love learning every day. So I, I really loved vet school. Um, and I, it, it's really nerdy to say, looking back, it was it was one of the funnest times in my life. Um, I, I met uh, some of my very best friends even today. Um, so uh, we, we certainly formed a, a bond that, that you just you can't help but do when you're, you're going through a uh, very, you know, uh, stressful and, and, and tough uh, curriculum uh, to get through. But overall, it was, it was a very, very fun time in my life. And um, I certainly am uh, very, very proud to be a veterinarian and very happy with my career. So Absolutely. I, again, I always tell people the same thing. It's like, honestly, like vet school to me is just as hard as it is fun. 
you know, because I yeah, had some of the sure. best times. Absolutely. I had some of the best times of my life in vet school. I actually had to my two kids in vet school. So, but. <laughs> but oh, my goodness. <laughs> and twin boys. And so, but, uh, but vet school was, it was an amazing experience. I, I definitely agree. And so it's funny. So did you know right away that you wanted to go into nutrition or how did that, how did that come about? Yeah, not at all. Um, I, I was going to, uh, you know, leave vet school. I was going to go into general practice and I was going to be a general practitioner, a small animal only, um, forever and ever. Um, and uh, as we all know that sometimes life doesn't quite uh, pan out the way the way you have planned, but um, I was in general practice for uh, about seven years. Um, I left Mississippi after I graduated. I just kind of wanted to, to move to a, a different uh, area. So I went to, uh, I went to Maryland first um, and the Annapolis area. And uh, that's where my first job was. And I stayed there for four years. Um, and then I uh, got a little uh, crazy idea to move to New York City. <laughs> so um, so I did that for about three years and, and was in general practice there. And um, I kind of got to a point, I, I, I clearly do still remember this day, seven years ago, having my little light bulb moment, but I just thought uh, that there that there's something more for me in this career than, than um, continuing in general practice. So um, I think my um, interest in animal nutrition really is, 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 you know, and many veterinarians know, um, there's, there's very little uh, nutrition education in vet schools and um, there's, there's no nutrition service at Mississippi State. Um, so I got very little uh, exposure in vet school, but when I was out and practicing, I was realizing I, I could probably be, you know, really doing a lot more um, in, in the nutritional management of disease for my pets than, than, um, than, than I knew to do. So I was really interested in human nutrition too, and I kind of, you know, like to play around with my own diets and, and tinker around with things. So, um, I, I think that kind of led into more of the interest in, in animal nutrition for me. So um, that, that day when I kind of had my, my, my light bulb moment, I, I, I think I want to uh, go back to school um, and, and maybe do something different and take my career on a different uh, uh, path. I, um, I reached out to a nutritionist uh, at uh, Cornell and another one that was out in private practice uh, at the time. and um, They would probably never remember this. But uh, they kind of steered me in the direction of uh, applying for a residency and, and pursuing that. So um, I decided to do, and that was uh, 2013. So very cool. Um, left general practice and then uh, got my residency at uh, University of Missouri, and uh, never looked back. So very glad that I did that. Very cool. Very cool. So that's great. I mean, so that is an awesome, you know, again, being able to have that kind of inspiration and having that kind of help going into um, pet nutrition is wonderful. But did you, did you have any like, I don't know, funny, fun, like inspiring pet stories um, that really pushed you into going into pet nutrition or anything like that? Um, I mean, again, I think I just, it, just the, the, the want and the, the, you know, the feeling that, you know, I, I, really could be doing better by my patients in terms of nutritional management. I feel like we all know that nutrition is so important, but when there's, you know, so many things on our problem list or there's so many other things we're focusing on, it's very easy for it to get, you know, pushed to the, the, the bottom of the list. And mm -hmm. um, I, I really, you know, 
didn't like that feeling that, you know, I, I think that we could be helping them them more. So um, I think that's really what just kind of inspired me. And, and to knowing that, um, you know, there's so few vet schools have nutrition programs. There's, there's you know, even, and it's, it's crazy in 2020 that there's just, there's so, so little education out there for something that, you know, affects every single patient. I mean, they, <laughs> Everyone. Every Absolutely. single one of them that comes in the door has to, has to eat. Um, so um, I, I think just to wanting to, to, you know, um, to enhance that education some more is, is what kind of really drove me to, to wanting to pursue uh, nutrition for our cats and dogs. Wonderful. Now, what do you feel is the most important part um, of your role as a you know, pet nutritionist, as a, as a veterinary nutritionist? Yeah, um, I, I think it's really just to be an advocate for the pet. Um, that's 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 my job is is to do, um, you know, to, to do right by them, to treat each of them as as if they were my own, and, and recommend to their owners what I would do for my own pet. Um, nutrition is a, is a very um, passionate topic. Uh, many owners are um, very um, excited. They want to talk about it, but they have um, some of them have you know some very strong um, feelings um, and opinions about what's what's right or wrong. And we may not always agree. Um, they may not always be um, happy with <laughs> with yeah. what uh, what I recommend. But but it is my job to be the advocate for the pet. So um, that's just kind of what I, I, I keep in the forefront of my mind. I need to do right by that pet. And um, it's, it's my job to make uh, the, my best recommendation. What are some of the more difficult areas of pet nutrition that you find like one of the most more challenging that you kind of have to face every day? Um, I mean, there's certainly some complicated, um, you know, medical cases where there's uh, multiple concurrent conditions happening in the same pet and there really may not be a good commercial therapeutic recommendation or option for that pet so we do um, I do often end up uh, preparing uh, or formulating homemade diet recipes for, for those cases um, and those can be really challenging in and of themselves because um, palatability is sometimes a concern um, certainly, the owner is a lot to ask of owners to, to home properly. Um, that's a lot of time and effort on their part, a lot of labor, and there's certainly cost involved. So those can, can really present challenges. Um, and, and sometimes we just try to find you know, the best fit for the pet and the, 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 the household and, and, and the owner. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I'd say when there's... Uh, you know, multiple things going on with the same pet that we're trying to nutritionally manage things that are, are conflicting. Those, those can really be challenges. Yeah. I would um, say that is extremely challenging. Yeah. <laughs> those multiple <laughs> cases. Uh, and then the home cooked diet. I mean, that is, oh my goodness, that it seems extremely, it is so complicated. And I definitely uh, like to refer those to the pet nutritionist because it gets way too complicated <laughs> to get those, all those uh, factors in, uh, in yeah. their diet. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I, you know, tell, veterinarians all the time if you know even if you have an owner home cooking for an otherwise healthy pet and they're home cooking just because they, they, they want to um, just, just always you know refer them to a board certified veterinary nutritionist because the the likelihood of that recipe being complete imbalance just you know on their own they've found it in an online or right. in a book somewhere got it from their neighbor um, <laughs> yes. are uh, very unlikely that it's going to be adequate so absolutely um, 
Yeah. Whether or not they have any medical conditions, if that's going on in the household, then um, certainly seek out the proper um, uh, expertise. Definitely. And so can you explain to our listeners what AFCO um, is? Yeah, sure. So AFCO stands for the Association of American Feed Control Officials. Um, AFCO has been around since early 1900s. Um, They are an organization that's made up of members of um, the individual state feed control officials who have regulatory authority over um, pet food products that are sold in their state. Um, But also members of AFCO are members of the FDA um, who have uh, regulatory authority over pet food products that are sold in multiple states or that cross state lines. Um, they even have regulatory authority over ingredients that come into the country, things like that. Um, AFCO itself, while the, its members are state feed control officials and, and, and members of the FDA, um, AFCO, uh, their, their purpose has, has really always been to just be a be a forum, be a place where these members can come together to, um, to agree on standards and uniformity that pet food manufacturers can follow when they're wanting to sell you know, pet food products uh, in, in the country. Um, so they, they meet uh, twice a year um, and um, they talk about this. Members talk about things like, uh, how do we define this ingredient? Um, what are ingredients that can be used in pet foods? Um, what are ingredients that cannot be used in pet foods? Um, and, and they really, it's, its purpose is to have this platform where there can be some uniformity amongst all, all of the states so we can all kind of be on the same, the same page. Um, I think it, it's important to know because it can be a little confusing as to really what AFCO does um, and what they are and, and are not. They're not a... Uh, regulatory uh, regulatory authority in and of themselves. So um, while they may set the standards for what hopefully pet food manufacturers are following, you know, AFCO doesn't approve any products. They don't go in manufacturing facilities and, you know, wag their finger at, at people to make sure that they're doing the right thing. That is really up to uh, the pet food manufacturers to, to be doing uh, the right thing and to be following standards and, and their guidelines. Um, so kind of an area we're coming into play is trust and, and confidence in, in pet food manufacturers. So just to kind of summarize that, um, pet food regulation is regulated at the uh, local level by the state feed control officials, but at the national level um, by the FDA. Okay, very cool. And so, like, when, uh, so when AFCO, does that, they help make those, like, standards, so do they have their own standards um, that most pet food companies should meet? And so, is yeah. that something? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And it's, uh, and it's public knowledge. Um, they do publish uh, once a year um, what I call the AFCO manual. Uh, no one is ever going to want to purchase an AFCO manual except <laughs> nutrition nerds like me. Um, <laughs> but uh, in the manual, um, unless you're having some problems with insomnia, um, in the manual is um, their model bill and regulations. Um, so 
in there are things like, and, and one of the things that I refer to a lot and what's really important to me is um, uh, essential nutrient requirements for the dog and the cat. Um, there, are, there are minimum requirements that the pet food has to meet to be complete and balanced for that pet, uh, the dog or cat. And in some cases, there are maximums as well. Um, so you can find that in, in their, their model bill and regulations. Um, those are different requirements depending on the life stage. So if the, the dog is an adult maintenance life stage or it's in growth or reproduction, so they do vary a little bit. Um, also in, in the, the AFCO manual are uh, protocols for following um, uh, animal feeding trials. So if a pet food company wants to substantiate that their diet is complete and balanced by performing a feeding trial, there's protocols for that and following the, the feeding trial. And um, I, I'd like to come back to that just a little bit because there's, um, there's a, a, a difference in a formulation of a pet food and, and, a, and one that's undergone uh, feeding trials. Um, <clears throat> Also, definitions for, for pet food ingredients. You know, mm -hmm. what, what does chicken mean? Um, what does uh, a meal mean? What mm -hmm. does byproduct mean, et cetera? Um, and then there's a list of uh, ingredients that are not generally recognized as safe and so cannot be uh, used in pet foods. Okay. Just Excellent. much like you would find for, um, you know, for, for human foods. We, we have a, a, a grass or a gener generally recognized as safe list of, of ingredients that cannot be in, in human foods either. So very much so, the same as in pet foods. And so is that something then that where, where um, you know, pet owners should be, should be thinking about like, oh, this does meet or does not meet AFCO standards? Is that, because is that a on? A thousand percent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a thousand percent. So um, the, you, you will know if a diet is complete or uh, complete and balanced by looking at the bag or the can um, and, and looking at the AFCO statement or the nutritional adequacy statement. Um, most important piece of information on a pet food label, <laughs> um, also included in, in the AFCO manual is what is required on pet food label. So the pet food label is, is a, in fact, legal document. So there, there are things that have to be on there. There's a lot of things on pet food labels that do not have to be on there. And they're really just on there for consumers yeah. <laughs> or for marketing. But um, so most important piece of information on the pet food label is, is the AFCO statement or the nutrition statement. So it will say something like, so there's kind of three options um, that, that, you, that you'll see, you'll read. You have to search for it a little bit. I'm not going to lie. It's kind of tucked in the side panel or the corner or the bottom of the bag or can. Um, sometimes you need a magnifying glass. Um, <laughs> but um, so it tells you three things, though. It tells you if the diet is, is intended to be complete and balanced. Um, it tells you the um, species. So the most important piece of information, Information on the pet food label that I, I want all owners to, to look for on their own bag or their own can at home is the nutritional adequacy statement, or you might see it written as the, the AFCO statement. Um, you do kind of have to look for it a little bit, usually at the bottom of the bag or maybe in a side panel or something, but um, it, it must be there. It is a required part of the pet food label. Um, it tells you a few very important things. Um, it tells you whether the diet is intended to be complete and balanced. Um, it tells you the species for which the diet is intended, um, so dog or cat. 
Um, and it tells you the, the life stage for which um, the diet is intended. Um, so there are a few life stages. Uh, it's going to claim that it's intended for growth. So we're talking puppies and kittens uh, that are in their growth phase. Maintenance, which is um, adult maintenance. Um, and then gestation lactation. You can find uh, a diet that is an all life stages diet. And because nutrient requirements do vary depending on which life stage the pet is because their nutrient requirements do change. Um, if it's an all life stages diet, that means it has to meet the most demanding of the life stages. Um, and that's lactation. Um, so I think that this is important to know because, and, and I hope that, you know, all veterinarians will help um, their, their clients when they're choosing foods um, to, to look at this and pay attention to it. Because, you know, if you have a, you have a 12 year old, you know, chihuahua that, you know, rides around your purse all day, it probably doesn't have, it doesn't have uh, the energy needs. Um, it certainly doesn't have the nutrient requirements of a dog in lactation, uh, the most demanding life stage. So if you see that dog and maybe it's a little overweight, wouldn't be surprising, um, given those diets are much more energy dense than a maintenance diet. You know, just moving that dog to a maintenance diet feeding it for its life stage um, really might go a long way um, in, in terms of for the health of health of that pet. So um, if the diet is, is not intended to be complete and balanced, um, the, the, the uh, AFCO statement or the nutritional adequacy statement will say it is intended for intermittent or supplemental feeding only. So just yeah. That line tells you that that diet is, is not intended to meet all of the nutrient requirements for a dog or cat. And, and this can be a little deceiving. I have seen diets, um, you know, just right along with, with, with others on the shelf that by looking at the front panel of it, you might not be able to tell that. Um, it should have an indicator on the front, like it's a snack or a treat. Um, but they don't always, uh, it's not always that obvious. And I've seen some that I'm sure, uh, you know, some owners would pick up and, and, and not know that they, they weren't intended to be complete or balanced. But, but the AFCO statement will always tell you that. Um, so, so do look for that. Um, the other big difference in the nutritional adequacy statements are whether the diet is formulated to meet the nutrient profiles as set forth by AFCO or that diet has undergone an animal feeding trial to substantiate that it's complete and balanced for whatever species and whatever life stage. Mm -hmm. So um, many more times than not, the diet is, is likely to be formulated to meat. Um, and there's, uh, I guess, a little bit of debate. Is, is there a better way to substantiate nutritional adequacy? Um, you know, I don't discount a formulated diet. There are many diets out there that are um, produced by reputable companies that are formulated. They just don't do um, animal feeding trials on, on all of their diets. Mm, animal okay. feeding trials take time, <laughs> money. Yeah. Uh, they take animals. Um, so there's a lot that goes into them. But there are a few companies that do animal feeding trials on nearly every single one of their diets that they, they produce, um, therapeutic or over-the-counter. Um, and, and there are a couple of... Um, you know, uh, scenarios where I'm starting to lean a little bit to, to, uh, towards choosing 
uh, animal feeding trial diet over a formulated to meat. Um, and, and one of those is, is giant or large breed puppy growth. Um, so I feel a little bit more confident in knowing this diet has actually been fed um, to the growing puppy before it's ended up on the shelf. Um, your otherwise, you know, healthy adult dog or cat, um, I you know have no problem with a with a formulated um, diet. So okay, good. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of information. Just that one little statement, and I, I know it is is very overlooked. But I do encourage um, you know, all of our listeners to, to take a look at the bag or can you have at home and, and see what uh, your, the statement says about the diet. Oh yeah, again, that's so important. And again, giving helping owners really understand what they need to look for or just on back. Cause yeah. that's what they, that's really the information they need to know is yeah. what's on the back and what they should be looking for. So they know that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, another thing that uh, owners constantly uh, tell me uh, is, is that they, you know, they, you know, they discourage this product of food because they're like, it has byproducts in it. And I'm like, can you dispel or can you just tell people what, what byproducts really are good and bad about, yeah. you know, about these things and, and yeah, foods. of course. Yeah, that that term has definitely gotten a bad uh, reputation <laughs> uh, in the in the pet food world. It does have an actual definition. Um, it, it is literally just a secondary product produced from the principal product. That is all the bi- a byproduct is. There's many byproducts in our lives that we probably don't even recognize as byproducts, um, and there might be some products that you're feeding your dog um, or maybe your cat that are byproducts that you may not even realize that you're feeding um, them, them byproducts. So um, when I have that that um, conversation with an owner, if they're they're worried about that that term um, because it just conjures up uh, bad thoughts. <laughs> um, things come to their mind that they they just know that they wouldn't want to eat. So why would their pet want to eat it? Um, I always uh, ask them about treats and, and other things too. So uh, raw hides are, are byproduct. It's hide. Hide can at, not actually be in a pet food, but it can be sold as a treat. <laughs> it's a byproduct. Um, a lot of chew, chew uh, items, you know, hooves and antlers and and trachea, I mean, those are all byproducts. So if you're, if you're, you know, if you, you're wanting to avoid those for, for whatever reason, um, just, just think about all the things that you give to your, to your pet. Cause uh, I'm, I'm betting that there's, there's something in there that you might just not recognize as, as a byproduct, but, um, pet food companies, you know, know that, um, folks don't want to see the word byproduct on the ingredient list anymore. And, and many of them are actually taking it off and just stating what the product is. So liver or heart or kidney, those are all byproducts. Um, but you, you will start to see those listed actually just what they are on the label, just so that they can get away from using the word byproduct. Yeah. Um, I think it helps a little bit with transparency too, because, you know, uh, a lot of people will think, you know, about, uh, you know, um, uh, hair and feathers and, and horn, you know, as being byproducts. But if you listen, if you list, you know, liver or kidney or just list what it truly is. I think that helps a little bit. Um, it doesn't take away the fact that it's a byproduct. Right. <laughs> it still is. Um, but it's a little bit more um, easy to look at, I guess, and read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, just a little bit for our, our consumers and our consuming mind. But 
yeah. also interesting too though you know i mean many of these products are are not considered byproducts in other parts of the world yeah um, you know yeah. just because we wouldn't eat um you know some of these items ourselves you know um doesn't mean that they're uh you know um seen as as bad food items and and other parts of the, the country i think it's or other parts of the world i think it's just what we're kind of used to to seeing you know on our yeah. own pet food, on our own labels well, I, I love that you just said, though, that, again, that those things, they're, they're just kind of rephrasing what they are. Yeah. I, I love that because, again, because uh, owners have come to me like, you know, this also doesn't have any byproducts. And I'm just like, look at the label, though. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it says on there, liver and heart. <laughs> yeah, like, that, that is, a, that is, that is in fact, a byproduct. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's yeah. wonderful. All right. And so um, what are some of the most, what do you feel are some of the most common myths you feel? Uh, it's a very loaded question, I know. But what are some of the most common myths that you, uh, about pet food ingredients that you come across that you feel? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a belief that a lot of the things that go into pet foods are, um, you know, the things that are discarded from the human food chain um, that, 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 you know, diseased and, and, and dying pets, um, you know, livestock are, are just kind of, um, redirected to the, to the pet food chain. Um, and, and that's not true. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the same slaughtering of, of animals that happens for the human food chain is what happens for, for the, the pet food chain. Um, so, um, they are, our pets don't, don't get our leftovers <laughs> in, in that regard, but, um, but, you know, in, in terms of, a you know, from a sustainability aspect of it, um, you know, some of those items that, that we might not want to eat, like those byproducts we talk about, uh, can be used, um, from, uh, you know, from what might be redirected from, from the, the human food chain into, into pet foods. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. In, ingredients are not, uh, yeah, they're not, uh, not the leftovers or not the, the bad things that we don't want in our pet food, that, Very cool. uh, on our human food that goes to pet food. Yeah. And so what do you, what do you, do you tell owners that want to feed their pets, uh, really just like a kind of like a raw food diet? What do you, t- what do you tell owners about that? Yeah. Um, very, uh, passionate topic for <laughs> sure. Um, especially owners that, that want to, to feed raw. Um, I, I'm, I'm very honest and upfront. I'm not a proponent of, of raw food feeding. Um, for me, the, um, you know, any, any proposed benefits that we might see from, uh, raw food feeding just, just don't outweigh the risks. Um, for me, so those are primarily um, bacterial and parasitic contamination that we know. It, it is no secret that that meat is, is containing bacteria, uh, some more, more than others. But um, that that's that's certainly no secret. That's why we, we cook um, our you know our our meats. Um, so um, you know our our dogs and cats can be infected with, with uh, salmonella primarily, uh, listeria, campylobacter, and then parasites, um, toxoplasma, um, and, and others. It, you know, they, it, they can be affected by that. They can become sick from it. Um, there are certainly um, many reports out there of, of that happening. So um, the contamination part of it aside, um, other concerns we have with it are just 
know, chewing bones and fracturing teeth and esophageal and uh, intestinal foreign bodies and um, constipation from bone infection. All of those things do happen. Um, so for me, there's just there, there's many other safer ways to to feed our pets. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, I, I don't think that that's worth the risk at, at this point. Excellent. Excellent. And so now there's been uh, not, not a huge thing, but we actually had a topic. Uh, one of our topics uh, was um, pet, pet owners feeding their, um, doing a vegan diet for their, for their dogs and for their cats. And so yeah. um, what are your feelings about going vegan? Uh, with some of these pets and um, and also yeah so I just wanted to get your your thoughts on that yeah um, so for cats it's a big no-no mm-hmm. um, cats are obligate carnivores mm-hmm. um, that means that to meet all of their essential nutrients they need to consume animal products um, so cats are off the table and um, for me um, dogs are in fact omnivores um, they can eat vegetarian and vegan diets, it's a little bit harder to meet all of their essential nutrients feeding a vegan diet. Um, so I do try to, if an owner wants to feed a vegan diet, um, at least let me formulate, can I put some egg in there? <laughs> can I make a vegetarian? Um, because I, I'm much more likely to, to um, completely meet their needs and feeding a, a, a vegetarian diet. I mean, there are, in fact, um, vegetarian therapeutic diets that we use for different different reasons, um, skin issues, GI, etc. Um, so those those are out there. Um, if an owner just really wants to feed a vegetarian diet, um, I will try to encourage them to do a commercial. Um, I, I'm not a, a huge fan of the commercial vegan diets that are out there in terms of um, feeling confident that they completely meet all their nutrient needs. Um, but, um, and, you know, formulating a homemade diet is certainly possible, but it, it is difficult. Um, so I, I will try to encourage at least a, a vegetarian um, a diet if, if the owner is open to that. Very cool. So, so just so I understand, um, cats are not just small dogs, so that is correct. <laughs> they are not small dogs. <laughs> All right, good. No, good to know. Very different nutritional needs uh, for, for sure. And and just to just to kind of harp on that a little bit more, because this is a, a a little bit of my um, a, a soapbox that I will get on sometimes. But um, I, I'm very. It's very important to me that we respect these species that they are, um, and and not you know maybe put our own beliefs and feelings onto our dog or cat when when we have to appreciate that they have different nutritional needs than we do so um there's there's no nutritional reason that a dog needs to eat a vegetarian or vegan diet so um while we can be a little bit more maybe flexible with the dog and feeding a vegetarian diet there's no nutritional reason for it to do so so Mm -hmm. um maybe if we could just um remove some of her own emotions out of that and, and just respect the, the dog or the cat for, for who they are. Very cool. Absolutely. And so we've had a little bit of a, you know, fad with these grain free diets. Um, you know, we've had a lot of studies now kind of coming out with some of the um, consequences of feeding these grain free diets. And so I really want to get your kind of your, your take on these, on some of these diets that, you know, have come out and, you know, some of the problems that we've had and, and what's your feelings on, on grain-free? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, very, very good question again. Nutritionally speaking, um, there's no reason a dog or cat needs to eat a grain-free diet. Um, some of the kind of uh, questions I get on that are, well, I, I think he might be allergic, you know, to the corn or to rice or, or, or whatever. Um, the chances of that are, are, are very, very slim. But um, if that were the case, um, we're likely going to be able to find another diet that is brain inclusive, just might not include that, you know, problematic brain. Um, so, so even if we think that the dog or cat may be allergic, there's, there's probably still um, some options out there that just that don't include that problematic brain. Um, the issue with um, grain-free diets that we're seeing, and I want to group in um, boutique-type diets, so diets that are um, more likely to be produced by smaller, maybe more local mom-and-pop stock kind of things, um, and exotic meat diets. So um, many of you may have heard the, the term kind of been coined the, the BEG diet, so boutique exotic meat and grain-free. So I'm going to group all of those together here um, and talking about the association between um, BEG diets and including grain-free and the uh, development of DCM or dilated cardiomyopathy in, in dogs. So um, this uh, came to, to be known uh, now a couple of years ago, gosh, like two and a half years ago, I guess like summer of 2018, that uh, veterinary cardiologist, um, nutritionist, internist, um, we're seeing um, a lot of uh, dogs that we might not see DCM in. There are some breeds that are more predisposed to developing DCM, but uh, we were seeing uh, DCM and, and maybe smaller breeds or breeds we wouldn't typically see in and um, started looking at their diet history and finding kind of a common vein of many of these cases are fed grain-free diets or and or exotic meat and or boutique type. Sometimes they're all in one. Mm -hmm. um, to be completely honest with you, we still don't know why that association is there. Um, there are, you know, I'm sure tens of thousands, maybe more, uh, dogs and cats that are fed grain-free diets that are completely healthy. So this is this is not happening to every single dog or, or cat. This is really more of a dog issue. Um, eating a grain-free diet. Um, but for me, given that there's so many other options out there that are grain inclusive, um, I am not recommending a grain-free diet for any dog or cat for any reason. Um, and that just kind of goes back to, nutritionally speaking, there, there is no reason to mm -hmm. eat a, a grain-free diet. So we can, we can find other options out there. Um, I, before, before coming here to, uh, to Heart of Texas, I was at the University of Missouri, and, and that's kind of when all this was starting to, to become. I was following several cases. Uh, it kind of died out a little bit um, about the time I was leaving, and I came here, and I, I've, I've seen, you know, since uh, probably November, December last year, another, like, four or five cases. I'm like, guys, this has been a thing for, for, <laughs> for like, two and a half years going on. Uh, yeah, so... Um, so I'm not not sure, you know, what the you know why the choices are still to to feed those types of diets. When again, I just I think we have lots of other options, and um, so I'm I'm until I think we know more about 
what's the underlying cause here? Uh, why is this happening? Um, it's it's safe to just uh, avoid them. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. And so. When uh, choosing food, do you have a few companies that you feel stand out from um, others and, you know, how much research they put into their pet foods, you know, and into the science of yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because um, that, that's that's one of the most important things to me, especially with pets with medical conditions. Um, and when we're talking about using therapeutic commercial diets or we're talking about, um, you know, needing to go to a homemade diet and we don't have a good therapeutic commercial diet, um, you know, the 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 budget spent on, on research and development yeah. is much more important to me than than the budget that they spend on marketing. Um, and, and certainly there's some some you know companies that, that do that better than others, I think. So um, because I don't see uh, otherwise healthy pets. Um, I am using a lot of therapeutic commercial diets. Um, so there are, there are some uh, companies that, that make those. Um, so I do use a lot of uh, Hills prescription diet. Um, they certainly have several lines that are over the counter. So we've all heard of Hill Science Diet, um, Ideal Balance, or Healthy Advantage. Those are all the over-the-counter lines. Um, and I do use a lot of Purina veterinary um, pro-plan diets um, in the therapeutic realm, but they have a ton of options over the counter. They have um, Purina pro-plan and, and one. They have they actually have a pretty large um, uh, profile, really, to kind of meet. Uh, you know, really all price points. So, um, so I like that about about them as a company. Um, I use a lot of Royal Canin products, um, again, in the therapeutic realm, but they have, again, many over-the-counter options as well. Um, and I do use a lot of um, Blue Buffalo is in the veterinary therapeutic line. Um, so I do use um, some of their veterinary therapeutic diets. Um, they, they, they appeal to to maybe a, a, the type of owner who um, likes to see the word natural um, mm -hmm. yeah. on, on the bag or, or healthy or, or whatever. So, um, you know, I, I do sometimes get some, some um, you know, some kickback from, from using a Hills prescription product or a Purina product or a Wolfman product, but um, sometimes owners are a little bit more amendable to using uh, a blue blue product. So I do use a lot of their, their therapeutic diets um, when, when needed. So okay. um, I, I would say those are kind of a, a big four, yeah. I guess. <laughs> okay, good. Um, but I do use a lot of their products. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so Dr. Foster, I don't know uh, how to thank you enough for, for joining us today on our show. It has been absolutely wonderful to have you. Pet nutrition is such an essential part of owning a pet, you know, and caring for a pet. Uh, and it's one of the easiest ways to keep them healthy. It has been awesome getting to know you and I'm so grateful for your expertise you share with us today and for really all you do for our pets. I mean, I cannot thank you enough. You're extremely brilliant. And so thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you, Dr. Contreras. This was a lot of fun. Um, I hope your listeners find it uh, helpful and maybe can take a little, little piece of information, um, you know, away from it um, for, for their pets. So um, I appreciate uh, the time and the invitation uh, to have me on today. Awesome. Well, we hope we get you back sometime as well. So, yeah. all right. Thank you so much. Yeah. When we get back, I will reveal my product of the week. Stick around.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The Vet Pros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards health care for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. Welcome back to Healthy Tales. It's time for our product of the week. It's a great time of year to take our dogs outside and get some exercise with them. It's so much fun to go out on long hikes with our pet dogs, and it's great fun for them, too. Dogs love all the environmental stimuli, walking on paths, climbing up hills, and smelling all the smells help them stay active throughout the hike. But when we go on long hikes, we should always make sure our pets are safe and comfortable. The most important thing we need to take with us on our hikes is water. And that's why our product of the week is the High Wave Auto Dog Mug Portable Dog Water Bottle and Bowl. This great product helps make it extremely easy to carry water with us on our adventures so we can provide the water our pets need when they need it. This great product helps make it extremely easy to carry water with us on our adventures so we can provide the water our pets need when they need it. Hiking with our pets helps us create awesome memories and bonding time and it provides excellent exercise for all of us. We need to keep our pets safe, including not allowing them to overheat. And this product offers an easy way to keep our pets hydrated while adventuring. So let's get out, get some fresh air with our pets, and keep them comfortable in the process with this easy and super handy drinking device. Thank you so much for joining us today. Special thanks to my amazing co-hosts, Elaine and Tim, and my expert guest, Dr. Lauren Foster. I want to thank you, our amazing listeners, for your support, and please continue to give us feedback at vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com or rate us on iTunes or download us on demand. 
We hope you join us for our next episode where we give you more great tips and help you unleash your pet parenting power. Thank you for listening to Healthy Tales. Please join your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's wishing better health for you and your pet.